When was the last time you said or thought, I just don't think I can endure this anymore? You say, well, it was about 10 minutes into your last sermon. (laughs) Okay, besides that, besides that. Maybe it's your 25th night in a row of your baby waking up crying. Or maybe it's uh, weeks or months of a sickness that you or a family member are enduring. Or it's a conflict in your family that keeps coming up. It's been going on for months and for years. Repeated financial crisis that where you think you're finally starting to get ahead, another big expense comes up and you're back behind again. Or a work situation that drains you and you dread going into work every day. And it just doesn't seem to change. Maybe some of you have endured through some of these things in the past and you've been able to see that actually some good has come out of enduring and not just quitting, not just giving up. Today we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul about the value and necessity of enduring of enduring in faith in Christ and his gospel, even though it involves suffering. So we're, we're in 2 Timothy, and what's going on in this letter is Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's, uh, he knows he's soon to be executed, and he's writing to, pre- to prepare his beloved and primary disciple, Timothy, to take on his work, to carry on his work. He's based in Ephesus. So he, in chapter 1, we've seen that he calls Timothy to suffer for the gospel, to build, uh, to hold fast to sound words of truth and guard the truth. And he continues to call to to his call to Timothy in chapter 2. We saw some of this last week. Uh, We looked at four ways that Paul instructed Timothy in suffering for the gospel. He said, first of all, you need to be strengthened in Christ Jesus, so don't do this in your own strength. Don't even try it to do, to do it in your own strength. It's impossible. He said, entrust what you heard from me to faithful men who can teach others. He said, share in suffering by hard work, like an athlete, like a soldier, like a farmer. And then he said, think over what I say, because the Lord will give you understanding of these things. So he, what he wants Paul, what he wants Timothy to do is don't just... Uh, he, he wants him to have deep convictions about why he's suffering. Uh, he's not calling for mindless suffering. He's calling for deep convictional suffering. So today what we're going to see is Paul continues on with what he was t- saying to Timothy. Uh, his next point of instruction is for suffering for the gospel. His point is remember Jesus Christ so that you may endure. So I'm going to have you stand. We're going to read from the text in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-13. to Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for 
If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Father, we ask that you would cause us to hear and see the glory of the gospel of your Son in this text and how it's worth our all that we have because he's given all that he had for us. Help us, Father, to wisely apply these words, to, to have our hearts open to what we're going through in our own lives and how we can glorify you through them and how we can trust in your work, your gospel good work you're doing in our lives, even though we, we may not be able to see it at this time. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we be seated? So Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Of course, as Timothy is going to suffer for the gospel, he needs to remember Jesus Christ. That is, he needs to fix his focus on Jesus. Remember Christ is risen from the dead, he says. You're preaching a gospel and serving a Savior who has overcome death. Our gospel is based on the truth and power of the resurrected Christ. By the way, scientists are concluding that we can't live any more than 120 years. They said all this, the studies and research they've done over the last several decades have shown that they're, we're reaching the limits and there's no more that we can do beyond 120 years. So may you all reach 120. And remember Jesus, he says, the offspring of David. He is the promised Messiah, the Savior King. It's strong encouragement in suffering for the gospel to know that um, it's the fulfillment of a thousand-year-old promise. So what God promised a thousand years ago, that an offspring of David would would be raised up and become um, the, the Savior King of the world, God's making good in that promise through Jesus. And Paul says, as preached in my gospel, in my gospel, Paul's gospel, which God had entrusted to him, is about the power of Christ's resurrection and the promise of God's sent Savior. So he says, he calls it my gospel. The gospel owns him, and he owns the gospel. And so I hope all of you this morning can say, the gospel is not just the gospel. The gospel is my gospel. It owns me, and I own it, because Christ has taken ownership of my life and redeem me through the gospel. So it's my gospel. I'm embracing it fully. Timothy can suffer for the gospel, therefore, because it is it communicates Christ's resurrection power over suffering and death, and Timothy can suffer for this gospel because it's the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior descended from David, who would establish God's kingdom, vanquishing all evil and corruption. Can, I mean, can, do you think about that very often? That that there's coming a world where there's no evil and no corruption whatsoever? Are you going to miss it? I hope not. He says, I'm, in verse 9, I'm suffering for this gospel. Timothy can trust in these sound and healthy words of, of the gospel for which Paul is suffering. Paul isn't telling Timothy to, to do what he isn't 
already doing himself. Paul is suffering for the gospel. As he writes this letter, he's bound with chains as a, in a Roman prison, awaiting execution. The word for criminal is, refers to the worst kind of criminal, one who constantly does evil. He's, he's, he's been branded as a serious enemy of the state. He says, but the word of God is not bound. They can bind the messenger, but they can't bind the message. Timothy, the cause of the gospel is unstoppable. The cause of the gospel is unstoppable. There's nothing that can inhibit God's purpose to the gospel. We may suffer, be rejected, be imprisoned, and even killed, but your life is not wasted when it is spent on the gospel. Your life is not wasted when it's spent on the gospel. For it cannot fail to save from sin and death of those who believe it. So the encouragement to us is what's true for the Apostle Paul was true for Timothy, and it's true for us today. If we are suffering for our witness for the gospel, our lives are not wasted. Or if we are suffering for other reasons, not just explicitly our witness for the gospel, but in our suffering we keep trusting the gospel, then our, our, our life is not wasted. Our suffering is not wasted. The way you trust in God and your suffering is by trusting in his saving message, the gospel. Don't, don't, don't give up on the gospel because you're suffering. Don't turn your back on, on the gospel because you're suffering. You, you need it all the more. Leverage your suffering for the gospel. So I don't, I don't particularly like having Parkinson's disease. I'd be glad to be done with it. But I trust God who has appointed it for me. And it, it, it didn't randomly hit me. God appointed it for me because he's got a gospel plan that he's working out through it. And I only know that by faith because I don't see all the evidence of it. I can't, make, I can't draw all the lines to, hey, I've got Parkinson's and God's advancing the gospel. But I know he's doing it because that's the kind of God he is. My sister, my baby sister, has had multiple sclerosis for years. And lately she's had breast cancer, and she had a double mastectomy. She said to me, see if I can get this. This is what she said to me. Believing so long that if I worked, prayed hard enough, I could outrun and outlast tribulations were wasted years. Now I count it all joy as these tribulations have cleared the deck for my ability to engage in authentic kingdom work, especially right in my own broken life, my corner of Indianapolis, and my family. So my sister has embraced the fact that her suffering has cleared the deck for her to live for the gospel. Because the gospel reveals that through the suffering, resurrection, and vindication of God's Son, he guarantees that he will deliver those who hope in Christ from their suffering. He may deliver them in some measure in this life. Sometimes he, he gives us some relief of suffering in this life. He's good for that. But he most definitely, most absolutely will 
in the, in the life to come. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What Paul says in Romans. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. This is easy to say in a church service. But when you're undergoing severe or prolonged seasons of suffering, your trust in God can be shaken. You might be tempted to reject God altogether. Or if not, he just seems distant and removed from you and your suffering. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, whose sufferings for you were not in vain. He has risen from the dead so that eternal good will come out of your suffering. He was raised from the dead so that eternal good will come out of your suffering. Do you believe that? Do you? So keep trusting the gospel. The word of God is not bound by anyone or anything that opposes it. A successful life that is gospel-less is a wasted life. A life of suffering that's got the gospel at the, at, built on the gospel is not wasted life. A church which builds its ministry on the gospel cannot fail. That may, may or may not mean that um, individual congregations grow larger and last for generations. Churches in parts of the world that are openly hostile to the gospel sometimes suffer great losses. Churches must meet in secret in these areas. They can't grow large because they become too conspicuous and become targeted by authorities or others who oppose them. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous persecution and pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would would soon wither or die. But the exact opposite has happened. Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from Muslim background. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million. The word of God is not bound. The gospel is unstoppable. He says in verse 10, Therefore, because the gospel cannot be stopped, I endure everything for the sake of of the elect. Who are the elect? We're not talking about what's coming in November. We don't want to talk about that. 
they are those whom God has chosen. I mean, that's what the word means, God's chosen people. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes, I think this verse may be on the screen, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave us his purpose and he saved us by his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. So way back before time began, he purposed to to dump a truckload of grace on us in Christ. So God choosing a people to save was according to his purpose and grace in Christ Jesus before time began. We can't campaign to win God's vote. We can't give political stump speeches and run ads to win God's vote. And he knows all the dirt on us. There's nothing that we've done that he doesn't know about, so... He's, he's got all the, the cruddy stuff that's in our background. So it's only by his purpose and grace initiative in Christ that he, he targets us for salvation. Now some hear this and they respond to this by saying, well, well, if God chooses or elects us according to his purpose and grace, doesn't that make our efforts to call people to faith in the gospel unnecessary or, or needless? I mean, why do we need to even do that if God just chooses people? We must not separate what God has joined together in the scriptures. God's gracious initiative and election and people's responsibility to use means to exert effort in sharing and spreading and preaching the gospel go together. They're just both taught in scripture. The scripture doesn't say it's a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. It's just both are true. God's sovereign grace in our salvation and our responsibility to believe and spread the gospel are not opposed to one another. We just take scripture at face value that both both of those things hang together, even though we don't get how they do. We see Paul embraces both God's gracious selection and vigorous gospel efforts in order that the elect may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul believed it was necessary to work hard to get the gospel to people and to get people to the gospel if they were going to be saved through Christ and live in eternal glory. But he didn't think his his efforts themselves accomplished the salvation of the elect. Rather, it was the gospel, the word of God, which cannot be stopped since it is grounded in God's eternal plan, his promise of a Savior, and Christ's resurrection, that is what gives Paul the confidence that it is worth enduring everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation in Christ, and to call Timothy to do the same thing. So everything that Paul is willing to endure includes getting stoned, not with pot, but... By rocks being thrown at him, I have to say that. He didn't go to downtown Vancouver, Portland, and help himself. Beatings, imprisonments, riots, 39 lashes with whips five times. Could you imagine being beaten with, being whipped across your bare back 39 times, five times, one time, one whip? I'd be done. 
dangers in traveling, such as flat tires. All right, are you awake? Cold and exposure and robbers, three times shipwrecked, sleepless nights without food and drink, and constantly being pursued by his enemies. He'd stop running and and his enemies would just slam into him. Few of Christ's servants will suffer to the extent that Paul did, so you can be grateful. But in order for the church to finish the mission he has entrusted to us, we must be willing to endure hardship, as in Paul's illustrations of the farmer, the soldier, and the athlete back in chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. David Hold, so I think we have a picture of the Hold family. David Hold was in the Harvest Youth Group back several years before I came. If you were here at that time, you might remember him. He was He's like eight feet tall. He went to Liberty University in Virginia and received training with his church in preparation to go to India, to serve in India. In February of this year, David, his wife, Jera, and their three young children arrived in Delhi, India. They had short-term visas. They were hoping to get his work situation settled and get long-term visas, and it wasn't working out. So after moving his family over to India, like about three or four months later in June, he had to move back to the United States and continue applying for a long-term visa. So he did work out a work situation, and he he did get a long-term visa and was able to go back there in September. So that's a hassle. And imagine moving into a bare apartment with no previous furniture or appliances, essentially starting from scratch in another culture where everything takes longer. It's like 10 times longer than going to the license branch to do anything over there. And they got to learn a language, and they got little kids. They, they got to get set up. And Because the gospel is the gospel of Christ raised from the dead, and God's word cannot be stopped, it is worth it to the holds to leave their relatively comfortable home in the U.S., to be far from their families and friends, to immerse themselves into a new culture in a city of, city of 28 million people with crazy intense driving, like worse than Seattle. I mean, way worse for us. They're used to it, but it's insane over there. To endure hardship for the elect in India, they can receive the gospel of Christ. Where there are so many millions of people who have little to no access. Most of us are not going to be cross-cultural, cross-border, ocean-crossing missionaries. Some will. But that doesn't mean we don't endure hardship for the elect to save some in our midst. You, you labor in your families for the gospel. You, you serve in the ministries here at Harvest, in your neighborhoods, in your places of work. You endure hardship with your classmates for some to receive Christ. And that's... That's standard operating procedure for for the believer. So God uses his servants as they endure hardship and suffering as a means of his elect obtaining the salvation that is in Christ. And not just they obtain it, but that they endure in it. So one one thing that we, we need one another to help one another endure in faith. I need you to help me to endure in faith. You need me to encourage you to endure in faith. That's part of the equation. 
in um, verses 11 to 13 of this text, Paul quotes uh, what he calls a trustworthy saying. Um, he quoted three trustworthy sayings in 1 Timothy. So this is yet another trustworthy saying. And he says in verse 11, the first line in the trustworthy saying has to do with our conversion. When we trust in Christ, we are spiritually united to him. So we die with him and we live with him. And he, he talks more about this in Romans chapter 6. So in Romans 6, 8 is virtually a quote of this same verse. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will also live with him. So when, when you read Romans 6, it expands upon it, and it's, what you learn is living and dying with Christ results in living a new kind of life as well as guaranteeing a, a resurrection life in the end. So it both has to do with living a new kind of life now and having new resurrection bodies when Christ returns. So if we die with him, we, we will live with him. So this is what is unchangeably true of the believer in Christ. In other words, once you have died with Christ, you live with him. If you've died with Christ, you live with him. That's it. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from him. You don't die with Christ, live with him, then blow it by sinning too big so that you have to push restart and die with him again and so you live with him again. You don't keep doing that over and over again. It's Once you've died with him and you unite with him by faith, you live with him. That's what Paul says. If, if we have died with him, is this true? If so, then this will necessarily be true, that you will also live with him. He doesn't say you might live with him or you might not. You don't make yourself die with Christ and live with him. God does that. You either have eternal life, which is indestructible, or you don't. Then the second line in verse 12 has the second and third lines of this faithful saying. In the second line, Paul talks about what we are, we are responsible to do if we are to obtain the salvation that is in Christ. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Stating, stating it negatively, if we don't endure, we won't reign with him. Reigning with Christ describes what those who enter Christ's kingdom will do. So you, you got a job to do in his kingdom. Paul isn't talking about a special group of people who are separate from all other Christians. It's true of all who Christ redeems and glorifies. We see this in Revelation 22, that all people who are in the new earth will reign forever and ever. This is the eternal glory he talks about. So you got that to look forward to. You're going to have, you're going to be reigning over something. So while it is true that God's work in uniting us to Christ in his death and resurrection is indestructible and permanent, we must endure in faith in the gospel of Christ or we will not enter glory. Once again, these are two truths that are taught in Scripture that, that are just parallel truths. If we die with Christ, we will live with him and we must endure in faith. Paul explicitly describes the consequences of not enduring in the next line. He says, if we deny him, he will deny us. So in Timothy's context in Ephesians, there was false teaching that, that some were buying into. 
as Paul says in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, some will not endure, there's that same word, sound or healthy teaching, but will accumulate teachers in, to suit their own desires and will turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. So there was a real danger, a real and present danger, of some denying Christ. Paul's quoting Jesus when he says this. In Matthew 10.33, Jesus says, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, are Jesus and Paul talking about people who truly had a saving relationship with Jesus? Who have denied him? No, they are talking about people who had a profession of faith in Jesus, who even had significant outward appearance of being followers of Jesus, but who were not truly his. Jesus has some sobering words. He talks about this in, in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, of lawlessness. And these weren't even explicit deniers of Jesus. They, they, and he never said, you denied me. He just said, I never knew you. What does it mean for Christ to know you? I mean, he knows about everybody. But to know you is to, for him to have like a family union relationship with you. He, he, you, you live in his life, and he's united to you. He knows you in a personal love relationship. He doesn't say, I, I knew you for a while, but you have, then you denied, denied me and I quit knowing you. No. He says, in spite of all you did in my name. I mean, these are amazing things. They were prophesying in Christ's name. They were, they were saying, Thus says Jesus. They were casting out demons in his name. They were doing miracles in his name. Wow. And he says, I never knew you. So they were pretty plugged into the church, so much so that the Holy Spirit power was working through them, even though they didn't know Jesus, really. So if this is true of them, how much more of those who actually deny Jesus? Well, wow. Have I done that? You say, there are times I've been embarrassed to speak up for Jesus when he's been mocked. There's been times where I could have shared the gospel and I, and I chickened out. Does that mean Jesus is going to say, I never knew you? He's, I denied him, so he's going to deny me? Well, there are Peter-type denials and there are Judas-type denials. Peter-type denials are those that are due to fear and weakness in the moment. They're temporary. They're not the true condition of your heart. Like Peter, 
Yes, he denied Jesus when he chickened out. But in his heart of hearts, he loved Jesus, and and he repented, and Jesus restored him, and and he continued on serving Jesus and growing in, in his faith. Judas's denials was different. It was a settled rejection of Jesus, even while he still tried to keep up the pretense of loving him by giving him a kiss while he's betraying him. When he realized Jesus' mission didn't fit his self-serving agenda, he rejected him and betrayed him to those who would kill him. Now, he even felt guilty afterwards. But rather than repent, he took his own life. So there is an eternal difference between temporary denials that in our sinful weakness that we repent of and a settled rejection or denial of Christ and his gospel, which leads to the final line of the faithful saying, the fourth line of the faithful saying in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Some people interpret this as a further uh, restatement of what he just said. If we deny him, he will deny us. It, what they say, they, they see it this way. Um, faithless means unbelieving. So if we are unbelieving, uh, like denying him and being unbelieving, and they're saying that God remains faithful means that he can be relied upon to, to judge unbelief in this interpretation. But it seems more likely that what Paul is talking about here is the faithlessness of true believers. Usually God's faithfulness, so he says God is faithful, refers to his reliable goodness to, to his people. So it doesn't seem that Paul is saying that he is faithful to punish unbelief. If we are being temporarily unfaithful to God, and periods of unfaithfulness are common to all believers, I mean, have you noticed that? Yeah. I mean, we've all been unfaithful. None of us is is sinless. We don't get there until Jesus gets back and we get sin purging and new bodies. Even when he must discipline us to bring us to repentance, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? It means his character never changes because of who God is. We can count on him to to be faithful to us, even when we're unfaithful. Our salvation is rooted, accomplished, and sustained and fulfilled in the unchanging character of God. Thank God. Because if it's up to us, we're, we're dead. We're toast. Burnt toast. His saving purpose and love for us in Christ endures forever. That's a good endurance. And because his love for us endures forever, he enables us to endure. We can endure suffering for the gospel and entrusting in the Christ of the gospel as we remember Jesus. The fulfillment of God's faithfulness to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to us. It is not just unlikely he will remain faithful, even when our faithfulness is faltering. It's impossible he won't remain faithful. It's impossible. Those are two negatives. So you've got to think. 
it's impossible he won't remain faithful because of who he is. He's just a faithful God. He can't not be unfaithful. He can't not be faithful. Now I'm getting confused. (laughs) For he cannot deny who he is, the God who already judged our unfaithfulness in Christ and raised him from the dead in victory for our salvation and eternal glory, who, who chose in advance to save us by grace before we even were. He's faithful. Let's pray. Faithful God, your righteousness and love endure forever. Because you can't deny yourself as the God who is right in all he does, the God who is full of mercy and who shows us infinite grace in Christ. We can count on that though we falter and and are unfaithful at times, that you will enable us to endure in faith. And we can trust you that if we're living for the gospel, if we're trusting in Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and living for us, and we're obsessed with living for Christ no matter how far we stray from him at times, that our lives are not wasted. Our suffering is not wasted. So help us, Father, to continue to trust in Jesus, to be wholly reliant upon him, to to just invest who we are, what we have for the cause of the gospel in our homes, with our neighbors, our schools, places of work, and among the nations. Thank you that in Christ we have life forever with him. It's in Jesus' name we pray.